stay on top of the latest business and investment trends in ed tech. In this podcast, your host, Todd Hand, talks with thought leaders, executives, and investors to explore the latest in the education and technology space. Welcome to EdTech Leader Interviews. Hi, this is Todd Hand with BSG Team Ventures, and really excited to have Shoshana Vernick from Sterling Partners as my guest. Hi, Shoshana. Hey, Todd. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for joining us. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your background and how you connected with Sterling. You've been at Sterling for like 15, 16 years now, right? 15 this summer. Yeah, I joined in uh, 2003. And you're in the education practice at Sterling, but that hasn't always been the case. That's right. That's right. So when I... um I've been in private equity 17 years. So when I entered the private equity field, almost all of us sort of entered as, as generalists. And in, at Sterling, we, sort of, we thought of ourselves as business model investors. And so we really looked at a wide span of uh, industries, healthcare, education, business to consumer, business to business. And Sterling is one of the premier private equity firms in education. What attracted you to go into the education practice? Well, you know what? I'll actually tell you what attracted me to Sterling, too. I I remember I had moved back from Manhattan to Chicago, and I was looking to find uh, an opportunity to work at a private equity firm that really focused in the lower end of of the markets because, to me, it was just so exciting to get involved with entrepreneurs that were set out to solve problems and build businesses. And when I walked into Sterling for the very first time, the entire ethos and atmosphere of the firm like palpably felt different. There was like a current of enthusiasm and excitement that together with others, we could really do do good work and, and change things. And I was very attracted to that early on, that spirit of entrepreneurism. And then as I, my career sort of evolved at Sterling, you know, I really got to get involved in all sorts of different businesses, every form of business model, multiple different industries. And I had some exposure to some of our education investments over the years, but I certainly would not have considered myself sort of a, a, a sector expert. And in 2015, when Chris Hohenserich, who for many years has really been our sort of uh, education champion at the firm, when he had begun having conversations with Bill Hansen, who was running Strata Education Network at the time, about how the changing regulatory environment was shifting the way that private capital served a role in the education industry, we really began to have conversations both internally and externally about how do we spin off sort of our education practice to have sort of very specific focus to bring flexible capital into the market to go where the opportunity was and to be able to continue sort of being this you know strong sort of private sector participant in the space. And the neat thing was that Chris and I had partnered up on a couple of our technology-enabled service businesses in the past and really sort of respected the way that each of us had sort of approached uh, value creation at the operational level, our sort of approach and style with kind of communicating and supporting management. And we had a bit of um, just sort of like a cultural sort of DNA that that was a really good fit. And so when Chris was thinking about sort of spinning off and, and leading this education effort, he said, hey, do you want to do, do this with me? What are the types of investments that you at Sterling and the education practice are interested in? You know, things that are, I would say things that matter. So we are- Is we it are across all invest- spectrums, you know, K-12, it, higher ed and corporate learning? 
It is, Todd. I, I sort of say, you know, it's as wide and um, sort of deep as your mind would wander. So by age, everything from early childhood learning all the way through to lifelong learning. By business model, I would say that the majority of our companies end up being technology-enabled, either software or technology-enabled service providers that are supporting institutions that are then disseminating learning. We have one operator and actual educational provider in the portfolio. Portfolio, but really it could be any type of business model. Uh, what we look for are organizations that have sort of a point of view on what their purpose is and how they're going to have sort of a, an impact in their in their marketplace, right? And what's the relationship that they have with that entity that is buying the services that they have? And then how do we be helpful in igniting in igniting growth together. So our typical equity checks end up being between $15 million and $40 million of equity capital per investment platform. And so today we have five portfolio companies inside of our first fund. Rattle off who those five are. So the first one called NRCCUA, and uh, we bought we bought that business about three years ago from the seller Don Muntz. So Don is just you know, terrific guy. He was running what effectively was a organization that provided research and discovery services for high school students that were looking to enter college. And then they were providing some marketing services to those colleges to seek out matches for, for purposes of enrollment and missions. And so we, we partnered with Don. We, we made some really quick sort of changes to the business model and to the strategic positioning of the, of the company, brought in some talent from the outside to look at the same problem in a different manner, and really just changed sort of the nature of how the company went to market. Um, we were very fortunate that we sold that business this summer to ACT, and I think it was just a win across the board for everybody involved. You sat on the board there, right? I did. I did. That, um, I did. I worked very closely with the CEO and the, the senior management team of that organization, uh, really sort of shepherding, shepherding it through, through its transformation. And we, you know, we still talk to the team. I think that's the best part of being in this business is, you know, with every relationship, you create another one. And so, you know, we sort of say relationships reign and, um, you know, the expansion of our network is sort of really how we sort of continue to be relevant. What are some other companies that you own? We own a company called Panopto. Panopto provides a software offering to both colleges and enterprises to help them kind of capture uh, what a individual is sharing in their level of expertise. And so you can create a very dynamic uh, video library that one can easily search, whether you're a student um, looking up information from a class or you're a student looking up, major, looking up information from a whole host of courses that you've taken along the way, or you're an individual inside of a corporation that is getting information from uh, marketing because you're about to go on a sales call or information from the CEO that's been disseminated across the organization. So very neat technology offering. We have a company called Amerigo. Amerigo is based um, here in Chicago. Uh, we help international students come to the United States for uh, their high school completion, and then we provide them with um, earned pathways into the traditional higher education market. 
We have a business called Academic Programs International, which is based in Austin, Texas, and API helps U.S. students explore their international experience options. So while you're in college, you can go away for a two-week to a 52-week program, either provided through the faculty at your existing school or through one of our sort of host locations around the world where you where you go study abroad or work abroad at a partner um, international affiliate. And then lastly, uh, we own a business in the early childhood space that is a operator of early childhood centers in the southwest part of the United States. And we help, you know, those Parents in those local communities find an environment where their uh, children can continue to be sort of enriched and, and grow as young learners. An area that's near and dear to our hearts is around leadership. And you've been a board member on lots of different companies and seen lots of different leaders. What are some common threads in your observation around what makes a good leader? Who is our CEO ends up being one of the most important decisions we make as an investor. So when we're sort of considering sort of who, you know, who is the right person for the job or what are the characteristics of a leader, I always first sort of think of um, kind of culture and followership. So to me, the CEO can build and attract just an incredible team against what their organization needs to do, both today and in the present, and then as well as sort of, you know, helping the organization move forward. We tend to gravitate towards leaders that are strategic thinkers, so they can assess a large number of information input, inputs, both coming from the inside and the outside, and put that into context to help the organization, again, sort of move forward and grow our markets and our ecosystems that these companies are playing in, they are evolving quickly. And there's a lot of sort of businesses that are both competitors and peers at the same time. So having sort of an agile strategic mind is sort of really important. We like leaders that that are sort of decisive. So when you have information in front of you, we, we tend to like partner with individuals that have an opinion that can be thoughtful in how, in how they're assessing a situation, but at the end of the day can put a stake in the ground. They have conviction and they can move the organization through with speed, with velocity. And then I would say, you know, there's sort of other sort of soft characteristics. I mean, there's a, there's a certain humbleness um, that is fairly consistent about around some of our best CEOs. So they're incredibly smart. They're incredibly analytical, but at the same time, it's not about them, but they're we individuals and they tend to have the right balance of being, you know, both mindful and heartful in how they approach circumstances. Shoshana, that was one of the best definitions of leadership that I've heard in a long time. I think you nailed it. It's about attracting talented people and getting them to pull in the direction that's best for the organization. I mean, that's, that's what we look for when we do CEO searches. And the context of these businesses to me, you know, it just matters so much. If you're, if you're, if you're, if you're buying a business from a founder and a founder has explicitly said, will you help me think about a thoughtful transition? The CEO that, that we're bringing in has to be so emotionally adept 
at working alongside of and paying, you know, respect for the culture that's there, the people that have been part of sort of that first wave of growth, while also thinking about how do we then move forward in a bolder, larger manner, bringing in some new expertise to look at, you know, call it a same problem in a different manner, and, and driving forward, you know, the innovation that's necessary for tomorrow. So, you know, we ask a lot of these um, of these executives, and, and so um, hopefully, hopefully they, they view us as good partners along the way. What makes a good board? I mean, you've, you've been a board member on many different boards, and um, I would imagine some work and some, you know, don't. What, what are some characteristics that make an effective board? Yeah, I stopped counting. I think it's at least 20, <laughs> but I, I sort of stopped counting. What makes an effective board? I, I think there's a few things. So one is I, I want, you know, I want management to want that meeting. So, you know, it's, it's a bit of a privilege to think about how you're bringing in outsiders from around the table to help you in a dedicated fashion think about how you lift the organization forward. So, so some of it starts with management wanting that meeting. If they feel like they are doing it to sort of check the box, then you'll never really have a sort of a productive discussion. And then on the other side of it, I think it's sort of directors that care, that realize that just sort of flying in and, and sprinkling sort of wisdom four or five times a year isn't necessarily enough. But why was I asked in the first place? And is that no Known by everybody, and I'm. Am I really? Am I really bringing my voice to the table? So I think there's some, you know, some things like that that are just sort of like the the kind of give and get of the relationship has to be sort of set up right in order to have a, a really sort of productive uh, board meeting. You know, who, who's around the table like matters a lot. I, I sometimes say sometimes my job is to shape the room. You know, it's to make sure that uh, we have the right people at the right time. Often the first year or year and a half of us owning a business, you know, it's a little bit of dirty work. Um, you know, we're, we're wa walking into circumstances where the plumbing of the organization needs to be fixed in order to have a harder foundation with which we can then grow. And so we tend to be a little bit more down and in, if you know what I mean, than up and out. And it, sometimes it's hard for board members to engage when it's more of that operational sort of stage. So I like to keep the board a little smaller so it feels a little bit more like a working group earlier on and then layer in expertise as the organization can take in more outsider sort of observations and thoughts. And so then as you're sort of cycling into you know the, the, the second year and after of, of the organization's life cycle, then all of a sudden helping somebody think about you know what's next what's going on in the marketplace to drive innovation what's highly strategic they're then all of a sudden ready they have the leadership team built out they're not dealing with some of the um, kind of hygiene related activity and everybody is sort of now meeting at the same place that's really interesting i want to ask you about one particular board uh, that you set on school of rock i happen to be a student uh, i'm learning guitar and i need I needed a structure, you know, I needed a class, I needed a, someone that I was accountable to, and I didn't want to let down. And uh, so I, I joined School of Rock this fall. But what was it like to sit on that board? It was so much fun. I mean, that was the one company that I will never forget. I mean, they wore t-shirts that said, my Monday is better than your, your Saturday. Oh, I mean, great. they loved it. It was great. 
it was really fun. I'm so curious, though. You have to tell me what drew you into School of Rock as an adult learner and, and, and how you're sort of approaching our program, because some of those adult programs did not exist before um, our investment was made. I do. I'm, I'm a self-starter. So I, I self-start everything. I'm a gardener and I, I take care of my garden. I work out every day. Uh, I run a business and I self-start that. I'm trying to teach myself guitar over the last maybe four or five years. And, you know, I'm, I'm learning on YouTube and it's, you know, primarily self-taught. What I wanted was structure. You know, I wanted a class. I wanted an instructor who, like I said, I was accountable to. And it's because I didn't want to come up with a curriculum myself to continue to learn guitar. I wanted them to give it to me. And so I, I joined the adult program and I joined the band and uh, now I now practice with a band and we will be performing on stage sometime in February at like the local rock and brew. And I'm totally intimidated and I'm totally nervous, but I'm way out of my comfort zone. But uh, it's, you know, I love a challenge. So, uh, yeah. so far, so good. I mean, it's awesome. I mean, one thing we had always sort of hoped is that by being in a group in that dynamic, each person is better collectively than independently and your learning accelerates because of it. I mean, one of the fundamental things that we did very, very early on in that investment was to reframe why the company existed. And when we got involved, it was all about saving rock and roll. And, and it was after, you know, workshops internally, bringing in some smart folks from the outside, we reframed the entire mission to inspiring kids to rock on stage and in life. And, you know, and it's the kid in each of us, right? So, so you are a kid, right? It's the kid in each of us and that, that inspirational message that you buy by rocking out on stage. It's self-confident building. You know, the, the older kids are helping the younger kids. Everybody's working together. They're, they're like selling tickets for the show. They're moving equipment. They're thinking about lights and it, all of the pieces that go into sort of a pro performance element, everybody kind of gets involved. And then you take those things with you. You take them into the classroom, you take them, you know, onto the, the, the playing field, you take them home. And that was really what we wanted the whole essence of the organization to be about. It's a great vibe. Everybody's really supportive. It's so empowering. You know, like I, I can't believe I didn't pick up guitar when I was a kid, you know, but I do feel like I'm 18 when I'm, when I'm playing. It's a, it's a cool experience. You and I both came into the education industries around the same time, you know, three or four years ago a lot has changed. And I think that's going to continue. It's our perspective that the education sectors are going through a total paradigm shift. You know, it's the dismantling of the monopolies, both the, you know, the big publishers, but also the monopolies in higher education and K-12, et cetera. What are some of your perspectives on, you know, where we're heading over the next two to five years? You're right, though. Three years ago, I, I, I entered the space and, you know, you and I have talked before about how GSV three, three I guess it was three and a half years ago, was, was both of our sort of first time at the conference. So I think the industry itself, given some of the long sort of sales cycle and given the, the real mix of both public funding, private funding associated with it, change takes time. But if I reflect as we think about heading into, you know, April of the GSV versus four years ago, some of the biggest themes that will be different, number one tends to be the awareness of employers 
that they no longer have to sit on the sidelines waiting for talent that is of the right skill set to come to their doors, that they have a voice in thinking about engaging with institutions, engaging with, you know, sort of the public sector and helping to sort of shape the um, learning of, of, of talent that is coming their way, that it truly is a supply chain that as a, a key member of, they need to get involved in. And so I think the amount of heads of talent, both at the talent acquisition side and on the chief learning officer side, that are now paying attention to the education sector and how all of the human capital management aspects of the ecosystem are converging with some of the educational aspects of the ecosystem. To me, that, that is a, a demonstrable shift that we have seen and will we believe we're only at the very, very early innings of such. My only kind of cautionary flag is that we're sitting at one of the type of, you know, tightest labor markets of all time. And so labor, like all things, is cyclical. And so it will be interesting to see how much permanent shift there really is on the employer side, spending money on education as a benefit, on talent development, and, and all things associated with sort of skilling up. How much of that is permanent and how much of that will we see sort of, you know, the traditional sort of cyclical issues associated with sort of downward spending in that category? We're, we're seeing a lot of organizations bring data and analytics, software and services to bear on the transition points from high school into college through to college completion, college into the workforce. And so the focus on really understanding those transition points and what is derailing individual success continues to be sort of a massive opportunity in place that the private sector, I believe, can make a difference and can, and can change sort of the business model paradigm and the way with which, you know, we're really su supporting folks in these leakage areas. The regulatory environment is probably better than it's been in a very, very long time. And where Title IV, about three years ago and two years ago was not a place that private sector was putting capital. People are beginning to think about how they view for-profit colleges once again and what is the role for those institutions. For us, that's a, it's a, it's a bit of a, of, of a slippery slope and hard to sort of get too deep into a category that can have such kind of pendulum-related sort of shifts. So there we are treading very lightly. But it does bring me to my last point, which is there's a connection between why there was so much pressure on uh, the operators of post-secondary institutions and why there should continue to be across all post-secondary institutions, irrespective of tax status, which is sort of the whole consumerization. You know, we have one and a half trillion dollars of student debt and family debt out there that is completely unsustainable. And so there has to be sort of a reckoning to ensure that people are getting enough value out of their education, that they can afford a good and healthy lifestyle upon completion, and that they, those that have hope, those that have aspiration, can use education to continue to get ahead. I know a couple of issues that are uh, important to you are recruiting talent from outside of education into the, you know, the sectors. And the more that we cross-pollinate from other industries into education um, will really benefit the sectors. And also uh, increasing the number of women executives 
in education. And I, I want to thank you because I know you're helping us out uh, with a couple of those initiatives. And I, and I think that they're, they're really important. Thank you. They're great. They're, I mean, they're very, very important to me personally and to our team here. You know, on the, on the, on the talent sort of piece of it, you know, Many, many business to consumer business models uh, where we're sort of operators of education or helping to provide sort of a flow to students, there's such unbelievably sophisticated direct media and direct marketing expertise that's out in the marketplace that hasn't historically been inside of education that we can attract that expertise. When it comes to sort of enterprise sales on the, on the corporate training, on the skilling side, there's unbelievably sophisticated. Um, software sales folks that have historically played in other industries that we could bring into those functional areas. And I could keep going, but yes, that's, to me, it's incredibly important to stay connected to the most sophisticated functional areas and business model areas that are emerging outside and kind of bring them into our space to keep lifting the overall game. On you know, and then you bring up sort of gender diversity, but I I'm just a believer in diversity in in, in totality. The when we have people around the table that come from different walks of life that have different sets of experiences, it's just a better conversation and it's better business. And so we try really hard, not just functionally to have diversity around the table, but also from an experience standpoint, from a gender standpoint, from a, from a cultural or ethnical standpoint. Uh, we just, you know, we, we try to be sort of thoughtful about it. Yeah, we totally agree. Shoshana, thank you very much. It was great catching up with you. Thanks, Todd. I appreciate you having me here. Subscribe and share the podcast with industry colleagues and stay current on the latest business and investment trends in EdTech. For more podcast episodes, go to www.edtechleaderinterviews.com. Join us next time on EdTech Leader Interviews with Todd Hand.